Section 20 of France in the 19th Century. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. France in the 19th Century by Elizabeth Latimer. Chapter 12. Paris in 1880, July, August, and September. Part 2. Here is a description of one night's work done by a Prussian general. It is taken from a work by Erckmann Chatrian, but those graphic writers took all their descriptions from the mouths of Alsatian peasants who had been eyewitnesses of the scenes which they described. Quote, the first thing the Prussian commander did on entering his chamber in a cottage where he had quarters for the night was to make three or four soldiers turn out every article of furniture. Then he spread out on the floor an enormous map of the country. He took off his boots and lay down on the map flat on his stomach. Then he called in six or seven officers, all captains or lieutenants. Each man pulled out a small map. The general called to one of them by name. Have you got the road from here to Metting? Yes, general. Name all the places between here and there. Then the officer, without hesitation, told the names of all the villages, farms, streams, bridges, and woods, the turnings of the roads, the very cow-paths. The general followed him on the large map with his finger. That's all right. Take twenty men and go as far as Saint-Jean by such a road. You will reconnoitre. If you want any assistance, send me word. And so on, one by one, to all the others. Such was the system and order of the Germans, while the French, full of amazement at their own defeat, unled, unofficered, and disorganized, are thus described by Edmond Abou as he saw them entering Saverne after the disastrous day at Wörth. Quote, there were cuirassiers, he says, without cuirasses, fusiliers without guns, horsemen on foot, and infantry on horseback. The roads taken by the army in its flight were blocked by trains of wagons loaded with provisions and clothing, and the woods were filled with stragglers wandering about in a purposeless way. Among the spoils of that day which fell into the hands of the Prussians were several railroad freight cars loaded with Paris confectionery, and two days after the battle it was easier to obtain a hundredweight of bonbons at Forbach than a loaf of bread." All this happened in one week, from August 2 to August 6. During this week the Emperor stayed at Metz, having been implored by his generals to keep away from the army. A week later Strasbourg was besieged. MacMahon, the remnants of whose corps had been driven out of Alsace by the Crown Prince, was endeavouring to effect a juncture with the army corps of de Failly. The object of the Emperor and Marshal MacMahon was to concentrate as large a force as possible before the very strongly fortified city of Metz. But as soon as they reached Metz, the armies of General Steinmetz and Prince Frederick Charles, two hundred and fifty thousand strong, began to close in upon them. There seemed no safety but in further retreat. The Emperor wanted to give up Lorraine and to concentrate all his forces in an entrenched camp at Chalons, but advices from Paris warned him that a revolt would break out in the capital if he did so. He therefore resigned his position as commander-in-chief to Marshal Bazaine. He was coldly received in the camp at Chalons and his presence with several thousand men as a bodyguard was an impediment to military operations. He was therefore virtually dropped out of the army, and from August 18, when this news was known in Paris, his authority in France was practically at an end. On the same day, August 18, Bazaine's army was driven into Metz after the Battle of Gravelotte, at which battle the French, though defeated, distinguished themselves by their bravery. Bazaine had one hundred and seventy thousand men with him when he retired behind the walls of Metz. Here he was closely besieged until October 27, when he surrendered. The news that reached Paris of these events, just one month after the Emperor had signed the declaration of war, not only resulted in his practical deposition, 
but caused a notoriously anti-Bonapartist general to be appointed military governor of the capital. Imperialism remained an empty name. France was without one ally, nor had the emperor one friend. Meantime, Palikao, to appease the irritation of the public, continued to announce victory after victory. Of all his fantastic inventions, the most fantastic one was published immediately after Bazaine had shut himself up with his army in Metz. A dispatch was published, and universally accepted with confidence and enthusiasm, announcing that three German army corps had been overthrown at the quarries of Jaumont. There are no quarries at Jaumont, there were no Prussians anywhere near the spot, and none had been defeated. But the Parisians were well satisfied. After the first panic caused by the dispatch that Paris must prepare for defence, means were taken for provisioning the city. Clément Duvernois, an ex-radical, an ex-Bonapartist, and one of the members of the Ministry of Defence, gave ignorant and reckless orders for supplies, which, in spite of the gravity of the situation, amused the Parisians immensely. Droves of cattle passed all day along the boulevards, going to be pastured in the Bois de Boulogne, where they were tended by garde mobiles from the rural districts. The cattle, the camps, and the fortifications attracted crowds of curious spectators. The tap of the drum was well-nigh incessant in the city, and while the enemy was drawing near, and bloody defeats followed each other in rapid succession, the Parisians seemed chiefly stimulated to write fresh libels in the newspapers, and to amuse each other with caricatures and satires. Among other foolish measures was that of ordering all firemen from the departments up to Paris. They remained in the city a week, and were then sent home. In their absurd and heavy uniforms, and with nothing whatever to do, the poor country fellows presented a miserable appearance as they sat in rows along the curbstones of the avenues, with their helmets glittering in the August sun, quote, looking, as someone remarked, like so many rare beetles on exhibition, end quote the spectacle being all the more ludicrous from the extreme dejection of the innocent heroes. Troops were always on the move. The garde mobiles, formed into companies, were not wanted anywhere. Being too raw as yet for active service, they were transferred from one barrack to another, and were drilled in the open streets and in the public squares. The forts absorbed a number of them. Others were employed as shepherds and drovers. The surplus was billeted on the citizens. Towards the end of August there began to be a notion that the city was full of spies, and all suspected persons were called Prussians. The mania for spy-hunting became general, and was frequently very inconvenient to Americans and Englishmen. Germans in Paris, many of whom had intermarried with the French, naturally found themselves in a most unhappy situation. At first they were strictly forbidden to leave Paris, then suddenly they were ordered away, on three days' notice, under penalty of being treated as prisoners of war. This decree affected eighty thousand persons in France, nearly all of whom were connected by family ties or business relations with the country of their adoption. The outcry raised by the English and German press about this summary expulsion procured some modification of the order, not, however, without a protest from the radicals, who clamoured for the rigour of the law. Mr. Washburn, the American minister, the only foreign ambassador who remained in Paris during the siege, had accepted the charge of these unhappy Germans and heartbreaking scenes took place daily at the American legation. Soon after the defeats in the first week in August, Mr. Washburn had his last interview with the Empress Eugenie. Quote, she had evidently, he says, passed a sleepless and agitated night, and was in great distress of mind. She at once began to speak of the terrible news she had received, and the effect it would have on the French people. I suggested to her that the news might not be quite so bad as was reported. Alas, it was far worse and that the consequences might in the end be far better than present circumstances indicated. I spoke to her about the first battle of Bull Run, and the defeat that the Union Army had there suffered, 
which had only stimulated the country to greater exertions. She replied, I only wish the French in these respects were like you Americans, but I am afraid they will get too much discouraged and give up too soon. All this time the Figaro was publishing articles that held out hopes of victory and flattered the self-confidence of the Parisians. Marshals McMahon and Bazaine were represented as leading the enemy craftily into a snare, and the illusion was kept up that the Germans would be cut to pieces by the peasantry, quote, before they could lay their sacrilegious hands, said Victor Hugo, upon the Mecca of civilization. Instead of this, the Crown Prince's army was marching in pursuit of McMahon's forces through the great plains of Champagne. McMahon had some design of turning back, united with another army corps, and attacking the Prussians in the rear, thus hemming in part of their army between himself and the troops of Bazaine in Metz. But he seems to have been really in the position of a pawn driven about a chessboard by an experienced player. Continually retreating, the Emperor, who was with McMahon's army, at last found himself at Sedan, safe, as he hoped, for a brief breathing space, from the attacks of the two Prussian army corps which were following in his rear. He had been warned repeatedly that he must not return to Paris without a victory. Quote, the language of reason, he remarked, is no longer understood at the capital. On August 30, 1870, the retreating French were concentrated, or rather massed, under the walls of Sedan, in a valley commonly called the Sink of Givonne. The army consisted of twenty-nine brigades, fifteen divisions, and four corps d'armée, numbering ninety thousand men. Quote, it was there, says Victor Hugo, no one could guess what for, without order, without discipline, a mere crowd of men, waiting, as it seemed, to be seized by an immensely powerful hand. It seemed to be under no particular anxiety. The men who composed it knew, or thought they knew, that the enemy was far away. Calculating four leagues as a day's march, they believed the Germans to be at three days' distance. The commanders, however, towards nightfall, made some preparations for safety. The whole army formed a sort of horseshoe, its point turning towards Sedan. This disposition proved that its chief believed themselves in safety. The valley was one of those which the Emperor Napoleon used to call a bowl, and which Admiral Van Tromp designated by a less polite name. No place could have been better calculated to shut in an army. Its very numbers were against it. Once in, if the way out were blocked, it could never leave it again. Some of the generals, General Wimpfen among them, saw this and were uneasy, but the little court around the Emperor was confident of safety. At worst, they said, we can always reach the Belgian frontier. The commonest military precautions were neglected. The army slept soundly on the night of August 31. At the worst, they believed themselves to have a line of retreat open to Mézières, a town on the frontier of Belgium. No cavalry reconnaissance was made that night. The guards were not doubled. The French believed themselves more than forty miles from the German army. They behaved as if they thought that army unconcentrated and ill-informed attempting vaguely several things at once, and incapable of converging on one point, namely Sedan. They thought they knew that the column under the Prince of Saxony was marching upon Chalons, and that the Crown Prince of Prussia was marching upon Metz. But that night, while the French army, in fancied security, was sleeping at Sedan, this is what was passing among the enemy. By a quarter to two a.m. the army of the Prince of Saxony was on its march eastward, with orders not to fire a shot till five o'clock, and to make as little noise as possible. They marched without baggage of any kind. At the same hour another division of the Prussian army marched, with equal noiselessness, from another direction, on Sedan, while the Württembergers secured the road to Mezières, thereby cutting off the possibility of a retreat into Belgium. At the same moment 
namely five o'clock, on all the hills around Sedan, at all points of the compass, appeared a dense, dark mass of German troops, with their commanders and artillery. Not one sound had been heard by the French army, not even an order. Two hundred and fifty thousand men were in a circle on the heights round the sink of Givonne. They had come as stealthily and as silently as serpents. They were there when the sun rose, and the French army were prisoners." The battle was one of artillery. The German guns commanded every part of the crowded valley. Indeed, the fight was simply a massacre. There was no hope for the French, though they fought bravely. Their best troops, the Garde Imperiale, were with Bazaine at Metz. Marshal McMahon was wounded very early in the day. The command passed first to General Ducrot, who was also disabled, and afterwards to Wimpfen, a brave African general who had hurried from Algeria just in time to take part in this disastrous day. He told the emperor that the only hope was for the troops to cut their way out of the valley, but the army was too closely crowded, too disorganized, to make this practicable. One Zouave regiment accomplished this feat, and reached Belgium. That night, the night of September 1, an aide-de-camp of the emperor Napoleon carried this note to the camp of the king of Prussia, quote, Monsieur mon frère, not having been able to die in midst of my troops, it only remains for me to place my sword in the hands of your majesty. I am your majesty's good brother, Napoleon. The king of Prussia replied, quote, Monsieur mon frère, regretting the circumstances under which we meet, I accept the sword of your majesty, and I invite you to designate one of your officers, provided with full powers, to treat for the capitulation of the army which has so bravely fought under your command. On my side I have named General von Moltke for that purpose. I am your majesty's good brother, William." Before Sedan, September 1, 1870, quote, The next morning early a carriage containing four French officers drove out from Sedan, and came into the German lines. The carriage had an escort of only three horsemen. When it had reached the Germans, one of its occupants put out his head and asked, in German, for Count von Bismarck. The Germans replied that he was at Donchery. Thither the carriage dashed away. It contained the French emperor. With Napoleon III fell not only his own reputation as a ruler, but the glory of his uncle and the prestige of his name. The fallen emperor and Bismarck met in a little house upon the banks of the Meuse. Chairs were brought out, and they talked in the open air. It was a glorious autumn morning. The emperor looked careworn, as well he might. He wished to see the king of Prussia before the articles of capitulation were drawn up but King William declined the interview. When the capitulation was signed, however, he drove over to visit the captive emperor at a chateau where the latter had taken refuge. Their interview was private. Only the two sovereigns were present. The French emperor afterwards expressed to the crown prince of Prussia his deep sense of the courtesy shown him. He was desirous of passing as unnoticed as possible through French territory, where, indeed, exasperation against him, as the first cause of the misfortunes of France, was so great that his life would have been in peril. The next day he proceeded to the beautiful palace at Castle, called Wilhelmshöhe, or William's Rest. It had been built at ruinous expense by Jérôme Bonaparte while King of Westphalia, and was then called Napoleon's Rest. Every consideration that the German royal family could show their former friend and gracious host was shown to Louis Napoleon. This told against him with the French. Was the man who had led them into such misfortunes to be honoured and comforted while they were suffering the consequences of his selfishness, recklessness, negligence, and incapacity. Thus eighty thousand men capitulated at Sedan, and were marched as prisoners into Germany. One hundred and seventy-five thousand French soldiers remained shut up in Metz, besides a few thousands more in Strasbourg, Falsbourg, Toul, and Belfort. 
but the road was open to paris and thither the various german armies marched leaving the landwehr which could not be ordered to serve beyond the limits of germany to hold alsace and lorraine already considered a part of the fatherland the prussians did not reach paris till september nineteen two weeks after the surrender at sedan which seemed rather a lull in the military operations of a war in which so much had occurred during one short month end of chapter twelve end of section twenty